I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I want to start, uh, well, I really don't have in, uh, an intent to, uh, to teach a series, but I've never known myself to be able to preach one message and be done with something. So I would assume, therefore, that we'll start a series on reigning in life. Romans chapter 5, verse 17, we're going to pull something out of context. Paul is talking about, um, he's inspired by the Holy Ghost to speak of how sin entered the world and, and um, uh, death passed upon all men. But in chapter, seven, uh, or chapter 5, verse 17 of Romans, he says, For if by one man, and the one man he's talking about is Adam and his sin in the Garden of Eden, for if by one man's offense death reigned by one. Think about that. One man's action caused spiritual death to rule and reign over the earth. Now, I wasn't there. Were you? I didn't have anything to do with what Adam did. It'd be real easy for us to just blame him. I, uh, I made this statement uh, some time ago. I think it, I'm not sure exactly how things are going to work in heaven, but there have got to be things that we won't remember. Because how in the world would we, we be able to walk around through eternity and every time we see Adam and Eve, not ask them, what in the world were you thinking? So there's got to be some kind of, I don't know, something. But it says, by one man's offense, death ruled and reigned by one. Much more. Everybody say much more. Now think about how absolute it was that Adam's sin brought spiritual death into the earth. Think about how absolute. We know this from a, from a historical position, from a, from an experiential position. Adam's sin caused spiritual death to come into the world. And as a result, every person has been born into that system of spiritual death. And the only way to escape it is the work of Jesus. We know that. We know that before we were saved, how absolutely sin reigned over us and ruled and reigned us in our lives. How trapped we were. How imprisoned we were by spiritual death. We know these things. Yet the Bible says... As true as that is, how much more true is it that another man's action will free you from that death? For if by one man's offense or sin, death reigned by one, by that one Adam, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Now, folks, the, the um, it's an interesting study if you ever want to do it. If you go look at what the Bible says about much more, all the different times it says much more, Jesus talked about much more, God loving you much more than he loves the, the birds of the air and stuff like that. Uh, Paul talked about much mores in relation to our uh, our place in Christ and so forth. Every time you see the much more in the Greek, it literally means something is so far above the other it shouldn't even be compared together. We look at it, we look at it like, well, okay, there's this comparison and then there's this. Adam sinned and, and death reigned. Jesus redeemed us, and so now we can reign in life. But in the Greek, it's saying this is a silly comparison because they are so far removed from one, one another, they shouldn't even be in the same sentence. That's what much more means. That's what much more means. As absolute as it was that Adam's sin brought spiritual death into the world, much more, so much further beyond that absolute truth is it true that through the work of Jesus, 
you can rule and reign in life. Now, here's the church's problem. We believe the first part of that verse. Oh, yeah, spiritual death ruled and reigned. And because we have experience with that, we have a problem with the rest of it. But remember, it's God saying they are not even in the same class. They're not even on the same page. These things shouldn't even be compared. Now, I want to talk to you about reigning in life for a bit. We'll see how far we go with this. The Amplified Translation, I believe it is, says, Much more they that receive the the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall rule and reign as a king in this life. Well, that's certainly true. But, folks, I would submit something to you. That's not what the Holy Ghost is inspiring Paul to say. You can rule and reign as a king in this life. There's no question about that. But what the, the point of this verse is, is that you rule and reign in life. We think of life as being in a natural sense, in this life, in this natural life. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about ruling and reigning in life. In other words, the life that comes by Jesus is your source. It's the origin. It's the means whereby you reign. Now, it says it's conditional on two things. It says you have to receive two things. Number one, the abundance of grace, and number two, the gift of righteousness. Well, now, folks, I would submit to you that everybody that's saved has received the the abundance of grace in salvation and the gift of righteousness. They may not believe they're righteous. They may not feel righteous. But everybody that's saved has technically fulfilled the terms of that verse. Is every Christian reigning? Certainly not. Well, then there's got to be something more to it than just fulfilling the technical or the technicalities or the technical aspects of being saved. He's got to be talking about something else. Paul's writing to Christians. Why should he write to them and tell them how to reign in life? If they're saved and that's the key to reigning in life, shouldn't they already be reigning? He's got to be telling us something more than just what we see on the service. He's got to be saying something more than just get saved. What does he mean? Well, first of all, the word receive means to take hold of or to act on. Much more they which take hold of or act on. Two things, the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. The result is you'll reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, grace has a lot of different definitions, and, and the, probably the most uh, uh, common definition that everybody's familiar with is unmerited favor. I don't like that definition. I don't have a problem with the, with the favor part. The unmerited part is what I have a problem with, because every time you say unmerited favor, the only thing people hear is unmerited. The only thing people get from that definition of unmerited favor, at least in my opinion, is we don't deserve it. Well, once you start thinking about what you do or don't deserve, you miss out completely on what belongs to you. How many times do you bring your kids Christmas presents or birthday presents and they say, oh, mom, I don't deserve this? (laughs) Seriously? They couldn't care less if they deserve it. It's theirs. You put it out in front of them. It's mine. Right? Why don't we do that spiritually? Why don't we do that spiritually? Why do we go to the, well, we don't deserve this. And whatever we think we don't deserve, we just ignore. If we don't think we deserve God's favor, then we ignore the fact that we have God's favor. And we live in a lower level of life. Why is that? Well, I think, uh, well, we'll talk about some of that as we go. I think the biggest part of it is religion has hammered us and beaten us down so much 
that we fail to recognize what the abundance of grace really is. I like a better definition for the abundance of grace. Now, you can't find this in, in the Bible, but it's a scriptural principle. Grace is everything that God did for us through Jesus. Therefore, as far as I'm concerned, the grace of God is the finished work of Jesus. Now, like I said, you're not going to find that in a, in a, in a scriptural definition. You can't turn to a chapter and verse and find that definition. But it fits as far as what God intends for us to have. So for my purposes, you know, agree with this or not, you choose for yourself. But for my purposes and the purpose of this discussion, we're going to talk about the grace of God as being the finished work of Jesus. Because everything God ever did for you, he did for you through Jesus. Everything that he showed his favor upon you toward or uh, or concerning, whether you deserve it or not, was through Jesus, right? So let's look at it in that in that sense. It says, much more they which take hold of or act on the finished work of Christ and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Well, that's a different, that's a whole different meaning to me. Because now we're not talking about some nebulous grace, you know, thing that you can't put your finger on. I think one of the problems that we have with the idea of grace, the concept of grace, is that there are so many different definitions that people use. That's why for me, it always comes down to the finished work of Jesus. If we take hold of that, then we can rule and reign in life. Now, I want you to turn with me over to uh, Ephesians chapter 1, because I want you to see something that the, that, uh, the Bible tells us about this condition of reigning in life that's available to us. I think in order for us to understand how to reign in life, we've got to understand some attributes or characteristics of God. Because if you don't understand who God is and how God works, then you're never going to understand what he intends for you in life through Jesus. Now, in Ephesians chapter 1, we'll start in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus. In the oldest uh, manuscripts, at Ephesus is not there. We don't know for sure that he wrote this to the Ephesians. Now, it's, it's written in many of the later manuscripts, and so we assume that they thought that it was written to the Ephesians, and so we accept it as such. But really, this, this letter is written differently than any of the other letters Paul wrote because it's not written to fix a problem. Every other letter Paul wrote, he wrote to address a problem or a situation that was going on. This is not the case with the, with the letter that we recognize as the Ephesian letter. He wrote this, and it could apply to anybody anywhere under any circumstances. Because it's doctrinal truth rather than, okay, here's what I know you're in, un, going through. Here's how to fix this. Here's what you do. So here where he says to the saints which are at Ephesus, it could be to the saints anywhere. It certainly belongs to you and me, but it could be to anybody. So he says this is to the saints at Ephesus, literally to the saints, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from our God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if Paul is saying there's a difference between people that are saints and those that are faithful. He did say the saints and the faithful. Are those two different people? They can be. We see that in the modern day church world that we live in. Verse three. Now, let me, uh, let me make a statement about this. There's no punctuation in the original Greek, but we know from the Senex construction and grammatical stuff and all that kind of thing from verse three to verse 13 through verse 13 is one sentence. one sentence. It's one thought with all kinds of things tied into it. How's he start off? Verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath, everybody say hath. That means past tense, right? It didn't say who will. 
It says, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, verse four is a, is a, in the Greek is called an aorist participle. We know of them as past participles. Here's what it means in the Greek. It means that whenever you have an aorist participle, the subject of that participle or the, the, the content that's being spoken of in the participle precedes the original verb, the main verb. Now, the main verb is we're blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. He hath blessed us. So that means before he hath blessed us, something else took place. Well, what took place? Verse 4. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Verse 5 is another aorist participle. You can understand these things build on one another over and over and over again. That's why this is all one big sentence from verse 3 to verse 13, through verse 13. So it's saying, before he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, something happened. He chose us before the foundation of the world. And before that, something else happened. Verse 5, having predestinated us according to the, unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So what's it saying? Well, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Well, in the beginning of what? In the beginning of God? God has no beginning. What does it mean in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth? It's the beginning of the story of God's dealing with man, apparently. Because God had no beginning. Now, I have a hard time imagining God in nothing. Because how can you be God and there be nothing? You know? But in my little peanut brain, I imagine that before God ever created the heavens and the earth, and and by the way, the heavens and the earth that are spoken of there are not the ones that he put Adam and Eve in the middle of. The world, the creation of the world, chosen us before the foundation of the world, means the world that was before Adam and Eve, the world that was destroyed, the world of old that Peter said God didn't spare, the world that Satan was or Lucifer was in charge of and the angels ruled over. Now, there may have been something before that that we don't know. We just don't know. We know that's as far back as God reveals to us. But however far back it goes, how many ages there were, whatever systems there were prior to what we know about, before all that was created, God came up with a plan. So God and Jesus and the Holy Ghost are sitting around the conference table. Now, I know if there's a conference table, that means there is something. I get it. I understand. I know there are holes in my my illustration here. But before God ever looked into the world and formed the world and said, let there be light or anything else, before he created the heavens and the earth, God came up with a plan. He predestined certain things. Now, I'm going to have to interrupt myself here for a minute because anytime you use the word predestined, depending on people's religious background and stuff, all of a sudden they start going back to what they've they've heard from church and teachings and, and so forth. The Bible doctrine of predestination is simple. If you understand how God operates. First and foremost, the Bible says that nothing trumps man's will. It says God wills for all men to be saved, yet we know that all men are not saved. Well, if God's will is for everybody to be saved, but not everybody is saved, then what is the most dominant force? God's will or man's will? Man's will. That's why Jesus said, whosoever will, let him come unto me. So in order to understand predestination, you have to understand that nothing trumps man's will. God could trump man's will, but he set himself boundaries so that he never will. 
So it's not a matter of what God can do, it's a matter of what God does. Okay? So, in order to understand predestination, let me give you a quick little illustration that we can all relate to. Let's say the church is going to have a big event. Do we send out the invitations to the big event before or after we plan it? We plan the event first, right? What's the first thing we plan in the event? Well, we want everybody to come. So we know that we're going to make invitations or send out invitations to everybody. But we've got other things to do before we ever get to that point. We've got to plan when the event's going to come because it are going to occur. Because if we want everybody to come, then we've got to make sure it doesn't conflict on the schedule with other things that are going on. We wouldn't plan a big event on Super Bowl Sunday. Right? If we want everybody to come. So we plan the schedule. We plan the activities. We plan for parking. We plan for all the different things that make take place. And, and when it's God that's planning, he doesn't leave anything out. We hope that we don't either. Right? Now, once we get all the planning done, once the planning takes place, then we send out invitations. Right? Now, do we know up front that everybody that we send an invitation from is going to attend? No, in fact, we know everybody won't come. Because as good as well as we may have planned things, as, as, as diligent as we were in figuring things out, we're going to run into schedule conflicts with somebody that, that we wouldn't know about, right? So we know there, that not everybody that's going to be invited is going to respond. But we want to try to get the most people in that we can to this big event, and so we plan it accordingly. But it's still up to the individual of whether or not they're going to attend. Okay, well, the planning meeting is predestination. God predestined. And this took place before the world was ever formed, before God ever created the old earth, the old world that the angels were in charge of, that Lucifer was the the anointed cherub that covers. And so God predestinated us. He predestined certain things. He predestined that we would be in Christ. He predestinated us in verse 5 according to the adoption of children. He predestined that man would be his children. Now, why do you have to predestine that? See, some people say that all of mankind are the children of God. Well, God seems to disagree. Just because somebody is born into the earth doesn't mean they're a child of God. Being a child of God is comes only through one way, and that is through accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ. In other words, the only way you can be a child of God is through Jesus. So the planning meeting, God's big event, which is salvation, which is redemption... God's big event had a pre-planning meeting. And that planning meeting was between God, Jesus, and the Holy Ghost. And they foreordained, they foretold, they foreknew that this is how it was going to work. So they planned for everybody. Jesus died for the sins of the world, it says. Not the sins of the saved. It says that he died for the sins of the world. Now, there are four words in predestination that the Bible uses concerning predestination that are important for you to, to, to recognize. I haven't finished my illustration yet. We'll get back to it. The first is predestined, the second is called, the third is chosen, and the fourth is elect. Called are the ones that receive invitations. The ones that are called are the ones that receive invitations. Remember Jesus said in talking about the end, he said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, for many are called but few are chosen. What does he mean? He means everybody's invited. The whole world is invited to be saved. Now think about this, folks. People in the Old Testament were invited to be saved. How was that? Through the promises of the Messiah to come. You know, it's an interesting thing 
Because in Romans chapter 4, it talks about Abraham's faith and, and it tells us some attributes of God. Verse 17, I think it is, says that God gives us two characteristics of God. It says, God calls things that be not as though they are and he quickens the dead. He quickeneth the dead and calls things that be not as though they are. We look at that as an example of our faith or the way that our faith is supposed to work, talking about the confession of our faith, and that's absolutely true. But God's not sitting in heaven giving more word. He's not sitting in heaven saying more and more and more things. The Bible says, forever, O Lord, thy word is established in heaven. In other words, God has spoken his word. He's not speaking more words. His word is already given. His word is already spoken. So where it says he calleth things that be not as though they are, he's not looking at your situation and you may need healing and says, okay, well, Jim, I'll speak healing for Jim. That's already been done. He's not looking at your situation over here and, and if you need finances and speaking finances into your life. That's not how it works. God's already spoken his word. And he spoke his word through Jesus, through the finished work of Jesus. He spoke healing. He spoke well-being. He spoke prosperity. He spoke redemption. He spoke everything in through what Jesus has done and what Jesus has accomplished. That's why the Bible talks about how we have Past tense, been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Some people will see that spiritual blessings thing and say, yeah, but Pastor Mike, I want earthly blessings. Well, we need those down here, don't we? You're going to need those as long as you're here. But the reality is every earthly blessing starts as a spiritual source. So the fact, if the Bible says God has blessed you with all natural blessings, you'd be worse off than having been blessed with all spiritual blessings. Because spiritual blessings create natural blessings. Natural blessings don't create spiritual things. So where it says you've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, and notice all of these things are related to Jesus. When it says that these things have come in Christ, it means you have access to everything that has already been spoken, everything that has already been done, everything that has already been accomplished before the foundation of the world that will provide for you now. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 65, and Isaiah 65 is talking about the millennium when Jesus comes and rules and reigns on the earth. And so I realize that it's not, that we're taking it out of context a little bit. But at the same time, God doesn't change. God's not different during the millennium than he is now. And it says in Isaiah 65, it says, I will answer before they call. Well, that's always been God's plan. When you pray about something that's going on in your life, God doesn't do something to change it. He does something according to what's already been accomplished. He provides for you the word which by can receive be received by faith so that you can take hold of, receive the finished work of Jesus to change your situation. God's not doing anything new today. Does this make any sense? So when you pray for finances, you pray for healing, you pray for any natural thing that you need here on the earth, God's not going to do something new. There's nothing that he hasn't already thought of and pre-planned for. That's what it means that we were predestined in him. He planned the event perfectly. If I need a new car and I'm praying for, for a new car so I can get to work or, or, or something like that, praying for a new job or something like that, God doesn't have to create one. There's a spiritual blessing that I can receive by faith that will enable me to receive here on the earth. Do you understand what I mean? In that sense, he's already called things that be not as though they were. The word's already been spoken. Now, if you know that, then you can see how in the Old Testament, even though those guys that believed in the promise of the Messiah before Jesus ever came, hundreds of years before Jesus ever came, thousands of years maybe before Jesus ever came, they are waiting 
patiently. They are standing expectantly waiting for Jesus to be raised from the dead. That's why the Bible says Jesus led captivity captive. He went to paradise, told them, I'm here. I'm the one that was promised. I'm here. Who wants to go with me? Everybody says, well, we've been standing here waiting for you for a long time. Let's go. In other words, they were called and they were chosen. Now, chosen is an interesting word. Remember the four words, predestined, called, chosen, and elect. Chosen is an interesting word because sometimes chosen is used in the Scripture to mean invited. Other times chosen is used in the Scripture to mean those that have responded. Elect always means those that have responded. But chosen is kind of a uh, transition word. And so here where it says in verse 4, according as he has chosen us before the foundation of the world, he has chosen us in him. Past tense, he has chosen us in him. He has chosen us in him. He has chosen us in him. You've got to look at the context to see whether that means he invited you or whether you responded. Well, since it was before the foundation of the world, you couldn't have responded. So here, this word chosen means invited. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I wasn't around. I didn't get my invitation. Yeah, you did. Because you were in Christ even then. So the invitation went to all those who would be born into the earth, who had the opportunity to be in Christ, it means God invited everybody. That's why at the end, nobody can stand there and say, well, I never knew. Yeah, sure you knew. Everybody gets their invitation. Whether you respond or not is up to you. That's how predestination works. God pre-planned redemption for everybody. He invited everybody. Not everybody responds, but certain ones do. Which What are those people called that come to the big event? The chosen and the elect. Do you understand how predestination works? God provided for everybody. That's the only way God could be without blame so that everybody has the option. Everybody has the choice. Everybody has the opportunity to be in Christ, to miss hell and make heaven. What you do with that opportunity is up to you. Everybody stands on their own and answers for whether or not they made Jesus the Lord of their lives or they choose to pay for their own way. He doesn't twist your arm and make you come to the event. All right, back to chapter 1 of Ephesians. Now, with that understanding, let's look a little bit further. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. This was the pre-planning meeting. This is where the invitations were made. They were planned and they were made. Not just when you heard, but from the original planning of the event. The predestination event or the predestination meeting. What did God plan or what did he invite us to? He has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world for two things. Number one, that you should be holy. Number two, that you should be without blame. Now, folks, I would submit to you that those are the two problems with the church world today. They don't believe they're holy and they don't believe they're without blame. I would submit to you that those are the two things that keep believers from reigning in life. They don't believe they're holy. Even though the Bible says we've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, they think that's some, well, yeah, he's going to do that, or yeah, that technically that's supposed to be the way it is, but I really know me. Can I get a witness? The second thing is we blame ourselves. And so it doesn't make sense to us how God could hold us without blame because we know where we messed up. Those are the two things, in my opinion, you judge for yourself. I know they're the two things that I've had to fight in my life more than anything else. 
I, I know I'm different than most people, but in a lot of ways, I, I think we're similar. Or in some ways, anyway. Well, in this way. Outside of that, I think I'm different from everybody else. But anyway, this is the area that I've had the biggest trouble. This has always been the biggest fight for me. Because I know where I messed up. I was there when I messed up. How am I supposed to forget where I messed up? I was there. Yet those are the two things that the Bible says God identified, God dealt with before the world was ever made. Before Lucifer ever became the angel that covered. Before Lucifer was ever created. Before the angels were ever created. Before anything ever took place, this was already dealt with. You were identified in Christ to be holy and without blame. Folks, that is more true than the seat that you're sitting in. It is more real than the car that you drive. It is more real than the person you're sitting next to. This is absolute truth. God dealt with this once and for all before you ever came on the scene, knowing full well you were going to mess up, knowing full well that Satan was going to rebel, knowing full well Adam would mess up, knowing full well that Jesus would come to the earth and die on the cross for sin, for mankind's sins. He chose you. This was part of the preordination, the pre-planning meeting. This is what God intended from the beginning, that you would be holy and without blame. Then why do you think you're unholy? Why do you blame yourself? God doesn't. And he never has. There was a time where you were responsible for your own sins, but as soon as you made Jesus the Lord of your life, that was done away with. You've never, in that sense, been unholy to God from the time you made Jesus the Lord of your life. Verse 5. Having, again, this was before the foundation of the world, having predestinated us under the adoption of children. In other words, we become holy and without blame when we come, become a child of God in Christ or by Jesus Christ having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. What does that result in? Verse 6, to the praise of his glory, the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. You are accepted. Quit trying to think that you're a stepchild of God. He's accepted you. Why? Because this was part of the pre-planning meeting. Doesn't have anything to do with you. This was before you ever came on the scene and God knew exactly who you were going to be before you ever showed up. There's all kinds of things the devil tried to twist things up. Well, God planned for all of mankind to be in Christ, but he never thought I'd do the things I've done. Are you serious? He knew exactly what you would do. He planned for everything. It doesn't mean he caused you to do the things that you did, but he knew who you were going to be, and he still made place for you. Verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, the finished work of Jesus. Wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Why? Because you're holy and without blame before him. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will. He's not trying to keep anything hidden from you. He's made known to you the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure of which he has purposed in himself. He's the one that devised the plan. That in the dispensation 
of the fullness of times, he may gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and those which are on earth, even in him. There's not two churches, folks. There's not an early church and a later church, present day church. There's one church. Some of it's in heaven. Some of it's in earth. The dispensation of times is talking about the millennium. Is talking about when God will join everything together. That was his original plan. Verse 11, in whom we have obtained an inheritance, having predestinated. Being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. He's he's going back to the beginning again. Here's another one of those aorist participles. It goes back to the beginning. Before the earth was ever founded, before the earth was ever created, God planned, he pre-planned this thing called redemption. And in that redemption, you would be holy and without blame. You were predestined to be chosen as a child of God in Christ. You were predestined to have an inheritance. Not just when you get to heaven. An inheritance comes when you make Jesus the Lord of your life. In whom also we have an inher- obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory. Not that we should have to hide because of our mistakes. I don't know if you know this or not, but as worthless and as unholy and as unworthy as you may think or feel like you are, you are what God, you are what brings God praise. God's happy with you. You may still be a work in progress. We all are. But God's happy with you. He doesn't hide his eyes from you and, and, and try to make sure that the devil doesn't know you're really in his family. He's happy with you. You're exactly who he planned for. You know what I'm trying to tell you? You've been predestined to win. Because if you've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, and if you've got an inheritance in him, in Christ, because you make Jesus the Lord of your life, what did Jesus ever lose in? Show me any problem Jesus didn't conquer. Show me any situation whatsoever that Jesus didn't have the answer for. Any. See, folks, this is the very reason why the Bible talks about some of the most impossible sounding things as promises and guarantees. Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. How is that possible? Because you're just as righteous as Jesus is. Hold your finger here and, and uh, well, you don't have to hold your finger here. We're just about through with this. Turn back with me to Romans chapter 8. Let me show you another place where this predestination stuff is talked about. And really, there's only two places where it is talked about, Romans 8 and Ephesians 1. I know that predestination is a very, very hard to understand subject for a lot of people, and that's usually the case whenever religion gets in the mix. The Bible's really simple on it. So you can have it either way you want to. You can have the 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 agony over over the subject that religion brings, or you can have the truth of the Bible that's very simple. Your choice. Romans chapter 8. We'll start reading in verse 26 because that's where the subject begins. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Infirmities means weakness, not sickness here. Well, what weakness do we have? For we know not what to pray for as we ought. That is a weakness, isn't it? There's a lot of things you don't know how to pray for like you ought to know. That's a weakness. Well, the Holy Ghost helps you there. How does he help you overcome that weakness? But the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. A lot of people get all twisted up on the word groanings. They get freaked out. Oh, groanings. Does that mean God's going to make you groan? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Groanings which cannot be uttered just simply means God talk. He's talking about speaking in other tongues. 
He's talking about divine utterance. So the Spirit helps you when you don't know how to pray for things like you ought to know by giving you utterance in other tongues to pray those things out. That's all verse 26 is saying. Verse 27, And he that searches the hearts, that's God, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because he, the Spirit, makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. In other words, God knows what the Holy Ghost is saying, even though you don't know because you're speaking in other tongues. Well, what do we know then if we don't know what we're saying? We know that the Holy Ghost is giving us utterance to pray according to the will of God. Praying in other tongues is the, is the easiest way to be unselfish in your praying. Because you're not praying what you want to pray. You're praying what the Holy Ghost gives you to pray. You can't pray selfishly if you're praying in other tongues. Because that's utterance given by God. That's not you trying to direct your prayer. And, and outside of that, you can be pretty selfish in your praying, can't you? I've heard people want to get me to agree with them. Pastor Mike, pray with me that so-and-so will do such and such. Well, how do we know so-and-so wants to do that? I can't pray against their will. Or I can, but it wouldn't do any good. So it's real easy to get selfish in your prayer, but not when the Holy Ghost is giving you utterance to pray. Praying in other tongues is such a wonderful tool because it helps you to pray beyond things that you can understand, helps you to pray beyond things that you know how to pray. And even some things you may know how to pray up to a certain point, but after that, how do we know? If you're going to, pray, if I'm going to pray for you, I may know some things about going, that's going on in your life, but I don't know everything. But if I get the Holy Ghost to help me to pray for you, He knows what's going on. He knows how to pray for the things that you wouldn't want me to know about. Verse 28. Here's a verse that everybody knows. And we know that all things work together for good. To them that love God. And to them that are called according to his purpose. Does anybody ever hear that verse of scripture talked about in any way other than when tragedy strikes? And that's the way that verse is used. The context of that verse is things will work out to your good after you pray in the Holy Ghost. You pray in the Holy Ghost in verse 26... Make intercession, who will give you intercession by the will of God in verse 27. And that can't help but work because you're praying according to God's will. That's what verse 28 means. It doesn't mean God uses tragedy to turn around for good. It doesn't mean that at all. Now, God may turn tragedy around for good. I would expect God to turn everything around for good because you're predestined to win. But that's not what verse 28 is saying. It's not saying don't, you know, just take tragedy when it comes because God's got a higher purpose. No. You can avoid a lot of tragedy in life by praying in the Holy Ghost. And God will turn around what the devil meant to be a destructive place or event in your life. And it'll be good because you've prayed according to the will of God, by the Spirit of God, by the Holy Ghost. And as a result, things will turn out good. And we know that all things work together for good. To them that are called of God. Notice the word called of God. Called according to his purpose. Them that love God and to them that are called according to his purpose. Called according to his purpose. What does that mean? That means they've been invited and responded to make Jesus the Lord of their lives. Verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. For whom he did foreknow, he also predestinated. Now, what did he predestinate you or me or anybody toward? To be conformed to the image of his son. 
What does that mean? That means God knew you before you were ever born. I, I don't want to make this an abortion topic. But how could God know you before you were born if life does not begin at conception? How could God foreknow you if life doesn't begin at conception? For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Here's preplanned. Here's what God preplanned before the foundation of the world. He preplanned for you to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, Jesus, his son, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, folks, what's the difference between the firstborn and the secondborn, the thirdborn, fourthborn, and so forth? Just the order of their birth. There's no difference in character. There's no difference in nature. In other words, as far as God's concerned, when he sees you, he sees Jesus. You're just as much his son or daughter as Jesus was his son. You are a child of God equally with Jesus. He was just the firstborn. He's not the bestborn. Although in our minds he should be. The Bible doesn't call him the bestborn. The Bible doesn't call God's real son. He says he's the firstborn. That means you're equal with him as a child of God. If, the, if these words mean anything. Now, if they don't, if these are just the words of men, then you come up with your own religion. You got as much a, a shot at it and opportunity as anybody else does. But I believe this is the word of God. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, that's that pre-planning, to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate... Here's this pre-planning that took place before the foundation of the world. Before the world was ever beginning. Before Genesis 1-1 ever took place. Before in the beginning God created the heavens and the world. God did predestinate them whom he did predestinate. Them he also called, invited. And whom he called, he also justified. Now the second time the word called is used, it indicates a response, doesn't it? So those that responded, he justified. That means to made holy and without blame, according to Ephesians 1, 4. Whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, on the heels of this, Paul is making a logical progression of thought. So what does he say? He says, so what does this mean? That's what the next verse is talking about. Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? In other words, he's saying, so what does all of this mean? I'm glad he just didn't throw doctrine out there and say, now figure it out for yourself. He says, so what does this mean? If you pray in the Holy Ghost, God works things out to your good because you're praying the will of God. Why? Because he foreknew you and predestinated you to be conformed to the image of his son. And those he foreknew and predestinated, them he called. And who he called, he justified. And who he justified, he glorified. It doesn't say he's going to justify you. It doesn't say he's going to glorify you. It says it's happened already. You're already justified. You're already glorified. Now, you may not look glorified to you. You don't look too glorified to me either. But that's because we look at things naturally. If we quit looking at things naturally and start looking at things spiritually, it'll change the way we look at things naturally. This is what it's saying. It's saying you've been justified, you've already been glorified in Christ Jesus. Not in and of yourself, but because it was part of God's original planning. Part of the event that the world was invited to, which is called redemption. 
What shall we say to these things? If, literally, since God be for us, who can be against us? He's saying God's on your side. What does it matter what comes against you? Now, folks, go back to what we talked about. God calls things that be not as though they are. He calls things that be not as though they are. If he has called you into victory, and he has, if he has called you into the victory that Jesus showed us, Jesus said, I'm the one that shows you what the Father is like. He that's seen me has seen the Father. Show me anything Jesus ever lost in. There were times where Jesus laid his life down. There were times where he didn't respond. But show me anything that he lost in. Show me anything that he didn't have the the means to overcome, whether they were physical, whether they were financial, whether they were spiritual. Show me anything that he did not have the spiritual power, the supernatural power that translated into natural resources to overcome him. Anything. Please. Anybody. Doesn't exist. And you're the firstborn, or he was the firstborn among many brethren. That means if you're one of the brethren, you've got the same things that he does. Why? Because he preordained you, he predestined you to obtain an inheritance. What inheritance? The same inheritance that Jesus operated in. That means you're predestined to win in whatever you face. And since God has already called things that be not as though they are, all you have to do is by faith exercise your belief in his word to obtain those things that have been spoken. That's why we can stand. I don't want to use the word wait because wait indicates uh, a, a passivity. I think too many people are waiting on God, and, and that's not what the Bible means where it says wait on the Lord. When I use the word stand, I mean to hold your ground actively, aggressively expecting God's word to be realized in your life. That's what I'm talking about. That's what the Bible says through faith and patience. We inherit the promises. Patience is not some sit back and, you know, rest in the easy chair and hope things work out. Patience is an expectant standing, aggressively expecting God's word to be realized. That's what you're predestined to. Now, Jesus didn't agonize over things, but he wasn't surprised when the fig tree dried up the next day. He spoke the day before. No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. This is Mark chapter 11. Next day, the disciples come by. They're, they're astonished. They said, Master, look, the fig tree which you cursed yesterday is withered away. Jesus is like, what did you think? Well, duh. How many things have you heard me say that didn't work? He could have responded any of those ways, folks. But it's not like Jesus says, wow, that was quick. He wasn't shocked by anything. He knew that his words were working. Now, what if he had passed by there and it wasn't dried up yet? Would that have bothered him? Not a bit, because he's still standing expecting his words to come to pass. But the fact that it already changed, he just simply said, yeah, I have faith in God. In other words, you can do this too. Why? Because you've pre- been predestined to be conformed to his image. You've been predestined to do the same works that he did. You've been predestined. To win in everything in life just like Jesus did. So what shall we say to these things? Since God's for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Do you realize what Paul is saying in verse 32? He's saying it's impossible for God to not give you what you need. Why? Because he's already given you Jesus. And you've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's impossible for you not to have what you need. You've been predestined to win. 
That's what reigning in life is all about, folks. Now, notice I'm not saying one thing about you being strong in yourself. Notice we haven't said one word about you being strong. We haven't even talked about being strong in faith. We've talked about the operation of faith limitedly. But we haven't even talked about being strong in faith. Why? Because you're a joint heir with Jesus. You've got an inheritance in him. It works because you're in him. Not because you're you. But because you're in him. It's his inheritance that you're partaking of. You're a joint heir with him, the Bible says. Verse 33. What else are we going to say about these things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Elect means those that have responded. Those are the ones that RSVP'd to the party and came. So he's saying, very simply, who's going to lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Since you've responded to Jesus, who can put blame on you? Folks, there's only one answer to that, and that's you. The devil can't. People can't. They can claim that you did something wrong. The devil can accuse you of doing something wrong. But the Bible says that you've been predestined to be holy and without blame before him in Christ. Holy and without blame before God because you're in Christ Jesus. So who's going to lay anything to your charge? Who's going to claim that you have blame attached to you? Nobody. Folks, I want to go back to the original thing that I said. Before the world was ever created, the two things that God established, first and foremost, is that you would be holy and without blame. Simply by making Jesus the Lord of your life. So who's going to lay anything to your charge? Well, but Pastor Mike, my aunt said this. Okay. There's a number of excuses or reasons for that. Maybe your aunt's an idiot. Maybe she doesn't know. Maybe she's mistaken. There could be simple answers for this or complex ones. But the reality is, who can lay anything to your charge? Who can make you feel unworthy? Only you. The devil can't do it. Other people can't do it. Now, that doesn't mean we're never going to make a mistake. And when we make a mistake, we need to fix it. We need to turn around. Remember, we've been predestined to obtain an inheritance in love. we got to maintain our love walk. So if we do something wrong to somebody, we've got to be the first ones to say, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Or I don't know what I was thinking when I did that. Whatever the case is, we have to make it right. We have to forgive. We have to offer ourselves up for the things that we made mistakes. But none of those things make you unworthy. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God of the elect? Why? Because it's God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? Who's going to condemn you? You're the only one that condemn you can condemn yourselves, folks. The devil can't do it. If the devil tried to take your mistake up before God, God's going to say, hey, they're holy and without blame. They're in Christ. And he has a legal right to do it because Jesus died for the sins of the world. Jesus took the penalty of sin, the original sin that brought that opened the door to spiritual death into the world, as well as your individual sins. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather than it is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. You know the reason Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father? The reason he's seated at the right hand of the Father is proof that you were predestined to win. 
He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He never moves from the Father's right hand as the eternal proof that you're redeemed. And through that redemption, you have the inheritance. You're the, the, one of the, the many brethren that Jesus was the firstborn of. You're predestined to be conformed to his image. You're predestined to do his works. You're predestined to reign in life through him. And Jesus is the proof of that, always sitting before the right hand of the Father. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? I never knew those things were whose. Notice he doesn't say what shall separate us. He said who? There must be a personality behind those things. Well, this is all the stuff that the devil does to try to separate you from the position that you rightly have in Christ Jesus. This is how he tries to separate you from the predestined win that God has ordained for you. A lot of people get all wound up about some people predestined to heaven, some people predestined to hell. Forget that. The reality is you've been predestined to win. Pure and simple. You want to have a talk about predestination? Let's talk about predestined to win. Religion won't have that discussion. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Is tribulation enough to do it? How about distress? How about persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, now here's the point of all of this, folks. This is what Paul is going to, uh, or starts off by saying in verse 31, what does this mean? Nay, and all these things were more than conquerors. Nay, and all these things were more than conquerors. Why? Because we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. We've been called, justified, and glorified when we responded to the invitation. Now, with that in mind, I want you to turn with me over. We'll close with this. I know I'm out of time. But uh, turn with me over to, um, oh, gee, how do I wrap this up? Um, how about James chapter 5? James chapter 5. No, First First John chapter 5. Here's the problem when I try to wrap things up. I don't keep wrap things up. I know how to start. I know how to get going. I just know how to quit. First John chapter 5. We'll save James 5 for another time. This is what always happens to me. I start off with one thought and then I get stirred up when I get to preach. And now I can think of 5,000 different sermons we can have on this subject. Which really blesses the audio people. They think, oh, here comes another 100 tape series. First John chapter 5. Notice in verse 4. John said, by the Holy Ghost, for whatsoever is born of God. Now, things are not born of God. Whatsoever is born of God has got to be talking about people. People are born of God, right? People are born again. Things aren't born again. People are. So the whatsoever is born of God, he's talking about people. So let's use whosoever. For whosoever is born of God overcomes the world. Notice what John is saying by the Holy Ghost. He's saying whoever is born of God wins. Now, obviously, he's talking about potential. He's not talking about automatic because not every Christian wins. That goes back to where we started in Romans chapter 5. Whoever takes hold of, whoever acts on the abundance of grace, the finished work of Jesus, and the gift of righteousness, 
realizing that they've been made holy and without blame. That was God's original plan. Those are the people that are going to reign in life. In other words, it's a mindset. It's not just being born again. It's an understanding of who we are and what belongs to us in Christ Jesus. It's not just being saved, folks. Being saved is the, is the, is the entrance. And mindset wouldn't matter if you weren't born again. So I don't mean to minimize salvation, but salvation is walking through the door. There's a whole big house on the other side of the door. Your inheritance is a whole lot more than just the threshold. But you can't get to the inheritance without crossing the threshold, which is making Jesus the Lord of your life. But so many Christians get saved and they sit in the doorframe. They've been given a whole house, a mansion, if you will. And they get saved and they sit down and say, oh, isn't this wonderful? Well, there's a lot of stuff in there. Yeah, but but this is just great. After a while, you get hungry sitting in the doorframe. And then so many Christians are saying, well, I don't know what God's purpose is in this, but I guess he has a plan. Well, his plan is for you to go in the kitchen and eat. You see the point? So he's talking about a knowledge of who we are. The Bible says that Peter said it this way. First, uh, second Peter, chapter one, verse three, I think it is. He said, grace and peace are multiplied unto you through the knowledge of Jesus. Grace and peace are multiplied unto you. He didn't say they're added. He said they're multiplied. Now, how is grace multiplied? If grace is the finished work of Jesus, how is that multiplied unto you? Through the knowledge of who you are in Christ Jesus. The knowledge of who you are will enable you to partake, take hold of what Jesus has done so that you can reign in life. So he's got to be talking about something more than just getting saved. It wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be great? Well, it wouldn't be, but we think it would be if somebody got saved and the next day everything just worked out for them for the rest of their lives. You know the problem with that? Nobody would ever grow because people would get saved for the natural benefits. But the reality is, when you get saved, even though there's more opposition raised against you from that point forward, you can learn about who we are in Christ, and then things will work out for you, even when it looks like you lose, the faith that we have through the knowledge of God's Word will cause things to turn around and change circumstances. God didn't make it easy for you. If He'd have made it too easy for us, then it would have been a natural thing, and and it would, well, the... the The time in the history of the church where the church was the most powerless was when the king commanded everybody to become a Christian. Because then everybody got said they were a Christian, but they were a Christian for the wrong reasons. But the reality is, if we give our hearts to the Lord and then commit ourselves to the word, God makes all the other stuff work out. That's when we become equipped to win. That's what he's talking about here. For whosoever is born of God overcomes the world. Born of God and knows who they are in Christ, in other words, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Notice he did not say, and this is the process that we overcome the world. He said, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. He said, your faith, your belief in God's word, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, your belief in God's word and your action on that faith by confessing with your mouth. Jesus said the, that faith works in two ways. Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. 
He's literally saying, if we put these things together, he's literally saying what you believe from God's word and say with your mouth is your victory. It's not the means of victory. It is your victory. In other words, if I speak healing because the Bible says Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sicknesses and with the stripes I'm healed. Therefore, I confess I'm healed by the stripes of Jesus. That's my victory. It's not the means whereby victory comes. It is the victory itself. As far as I'm concerned, it's mine now. I've just called things that be not as though they were. You're not healed when your body shows up well. You're healed because God said, or when you were healed when God said, Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses. Literally, you were healed in the pre-planning meeting when God said, Jesus, here's what you will do. That's why faith is such an absolute thing for us. If we just understand how it works. If you've confessed the word of God in your situation, I don't care if it's been a week, I don't care if it's been a month, I don't care if it's been 10 years, it's real as far as God is concerned. Why? Because he called things that be not as though they were. So what are, what's our part? Our part is to aggressively stand, expecting the things that we've spoken to come to pass. Now, if you expectantly stand, what does that mean you do? means you praise God for the answer. Folks, you've been predestined to win. If you don't get anything else out of this this morning, well, there's a lot of things I want you to get out of this this morning. I don't know what I'm trying to say. You've been predestined to win. There's not one area in life that God planned for you to lose. Now, I've had some losses. I don't know about you, but I've had some losses. What does that mean? That means I didn't understand what belonged to me. Let me face that situation again see how it turns out. I can't do anything about the losses in my past, but I can try to make sure that through the knowledge of the word and growing in the things of God, finding out who I am in Jesus Christ and and meditating on the fact that I am holy and without blame before him in love, I don't have to lose again because I've been predestined to win, and so have you. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that you have preplanned, preordained, predestined, for us to be conformed to the image of your Son. Thank you, Father, that you've predestined for us to obtain an inheritance in Jesus Christ. That inheritance is already ours. We don't have to do anything to get it. It's already ours. We simply take possession of it by faith because we are born of you, because we see, at least in part, who we are in Christ and what belongs to us. We see, Father, that this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Thank you, Father, there's nothing that we are facing now and nothing we will ever face that you haven't already planned for. When you predestined us to be your children, you planned for every situation, every possibility, every eventuality, everything that would ever possibly occur. And you've equipped us in Christ Jesus to overcome anything and everything that faces us. Thank you, Father, for loving us so much, for caring about us, so that we might be in your sight even as Jesus is. What a privilege it is to know that we've been made righteous in your sight, Father. Hallelujah.
Hallelujah.